man. Amen. We are so thankful for the worship of God. We're thankful for the worship of God as we are thankful for the Word of God. Um, this is the Advent season where we sing, or we should be uh, singing and be more consciously aware of the sheer goodness of who God is, what He came to do, how He has given us life, as uh, Tina said. And life is worth the living because He lives, because He came and He shed glory and He came in humility um, just to save us with one intent. He was born to die. He was born to die. So we are um, just thankful for this, this time of the year. Um, you know, this is an interesting time as things seem to go, seemingly are going backwards in a sense, and we're seeing numbers and, and people and viruses and things like that. You know, there is the one constant that we as Christians have, and that is that we serve the risen Savior in Jesus who at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, has given us eternal victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And um, as our reality is uncertain around us, we can rely on that which is certain, and that is in Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today, is um, understanding what it means to that we have the eternal, that we have the everlasting. Not that we are focused on the temporal as believers. And so, you know, you know, at the school, I do these chapel messages sometimes, most of the time that we have other people come in. But from time to time, I have to do the messages. And um, the last one that I actually did was about this. It was actually this exact message concerning hopelessness, healing for hopelessness. Now, it may be an interesting thing that we're talking about hopelessness during the holiday season, but as many of you know and are aware that holidays also means hopeless sometimes. Sometimes this time of year we are reminded of not the people who are here for the holidays, we are reminded of the people who aren't here. And while this can be a time of joy for our kids as they get gifts and presents, if you have lived long enough, you know that as those years pass by, there are fewer and fewer familiar faces that you see. And on top of the reality that many of us are, in fact, dealing with so many of our own personal situations and circumstances, and life has a way of, of tossing us to and fro, and the storms of life don't ever seem to cease for many of us. And there's this constant kind of battle that we're all facing where we're trying to figure out you know, what is the thing that I'm, a, I'm aspiring to? What is the thing that I'm dedicating myself to? What is the thing that gets me up out of bed in the morning? What is my chief desire when I wake up in the morning? And the reality is, is that many people, not just people in this room, but many people all over the world are struggling with that very issue. Every single day, there are people who are waking up and they have no idea why, they're, or why they've been awakened. They have no idea what their purpose is. They have no idea what they should be doing in life. And so the great struggle with so many people is they just feel like they've been splattered in the midst of this world, this earth, and they have no clue what it is that they're to be doing. And this is the reality, you know, we are living amongst the most medicated generation of our time. 
And the only other generation that's going to be, that's going to supersede our generation is the next one. And the one that comes after that. I mean, there are stifling numbers of people who are being medicated for anxiety. There are stifling numbers of people who are being medicated for depression. There are stifling numbers of people who are having to be medicated because of their sense of hopelessness. They feel like they exist without reason, without cause. And one of the realities that happens during this time of year is that actually gets exacerbated. Because some of us live our lives hoping for the next, right? Like you get a job and all of your, job, all of your life is hoping for the next better job. You get a house and then you spend most of your time hoping for the next better house. You get a car. It's the what, what, but what, when, when am I going to get a new one? Most of us live our lives in the reality that we are actually never satisfied with what we currently have. We're always desiring the next thing. And what we have failed to realize as we get caught up in the temporary society, the temporary reality of what we exist in, is that in this earth, in our carnality, we will never be satisfied. We will never be satisfied. And one of the big mistakes that we see as people try to peddle a false gospel about Jesus is that they tell us Jesus comes to solve all of our earthly issues and problems. But it's simply not the case. Jesus does not come just to solve our earthly temporary problems. So for the people who believe that God has promised us health, that God has promised us wealth, that God has promised us all these great things on earth, this is the reality. Not only is what God has actually promised us greater, it's better. What God has actually promised us in eternity is no comparison to any temporary fulfillment or joy that we're going to get on this earth. And so what we're going to do very briefly today is we're going to look at what the actual promise of Jesus is and why that promise actually supersedes anything, any fulfillment that we can ever get on this earth. And listen, I'll add this caveat before I get to the text. We are all at some, in some kind of way at different points of our lives, trying to numb ourselves from our realities. Because we in our hearts know that the reality is, is that nothing that we get will satisfy us. And so we will do whatever we can, even if it's temporary, even if it's hazardous, to numb that reality, even if for a moment. And so today I want you to see how what God has promised us in Jesus Christ is not just greater, because obviously it's greater. But you have to understand that the promises of God, compared to what we think we'll ever get on this earth, they're not just greater, they're better. So let's look at Isaiah 9, and we're going to look at 6 and 7, which, you know, we all should be familiar with this passage. Perfect Advent passage, right? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word today that you're going to give us, God. Help us see that we are moving prayerfully from the temporary to the eternal, God. Help us find our fulfillment, not in the things that are fleeting, not in the things that are fading away, but help us find our fulfillment, our joy, our peace in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, obviously, this is a text that we're all familiar with. But it's one of those texts that I don't think we always get quite right if we are not looking with an eternal perspective. Some of the things that are said here, which are really important for us to understand. One, we understand who Jesus is. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But then look at what it says about this. It says, but of his government, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I want to hone in right there on that promise that is made to us in Jesus Christ, which is said, one, he is actually establishing for himself a government. Not just any kind of government. One, it's a government that will have no end. But it's also a government that will perfectly execute justice. It is a government where perfect righteousness will, will exist. And so when we read this, and he says, I'm establishing my peace as the everlasting father, as the wonderful counsel, the mighty God. The first thing that we have to at least examine and come to the realization of is that this government, of perfect justice and righteousness that he's talking about, the one that's on his shoulders is not the government that currently exists. In fact, this promise has nothing about, has nothing to do about what happens now. Because I'm here to tell you now, if Jesus is only capable to fulfill all our brokenness here on earth, to give us justice here on earth, it will always be marred and fractured by sin. Any justice that we may get, any righteousness that we may get will always be stained with our sin. And so what Jesus is actually promising to us is that, no, I know that this is a world marred by sin. This is the exact thing that his disciples could not grasp. I am not coming here to redeem Israel, to execute the enemies. I am actually coming here to give all of you who are all my enemies the opportunity of salvation in eternity where perfect justice and righteousness will exist unstained and unmarred by the filthiness of our sin. That is what he's actually come to promise us. And I think one of the real mistakes that we make in life is that our fixation is that we want to grope and grapple all of the promises that are meant for eternity. And we want them right now. 
No, God, I want perfect justice now. I actually want perfect righteousness now. But if you get that perfected, it's always marred and corrupted, even if by nobody else's sin, your own sin. And so what he's actually promising to us is better. That's why when Jesus tells us, he said, look, I came here and I didn't come to bring you peace, but I came to bring a sword, a sword of division. Why would Jesus, if it says of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. Why would Jesus then say, but I didn't come to bring peace? Because what is he saying? I didn't come to bring peace now. But there is a time where he is coming and he is bringing wrath and justice and peace all wrapped in one. When the scales of justice will perfectly be balanced. That is the eternal promise of God. So why is it that we are groping after the temporary which has been meant for eternity? Well, Ecclesiastes actually makes it clear why we're doing it. Ecclesiastes tells us that every single one of us was created with a deep chasm in our heart, right? Every single one of us is created with a void. And some people describe it as what's called a God-sized void, but this is the way Ecclesiastes says it. Ecclesiastes says we have been created with eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? Somewhere deep inside of all of us, there is this realization that there is this, this longing for a place, for a realm, for whatever the case may be, where I can exist for all of eternity, where I'm not marred by sickness, where it's all good. But see, the, also the reality is not only have we been created with the desire for eternity of our hearts, We've also all been created with our own personal sin and the, per- and the sin guilt that was passed down to us from Adam. So that means that that longing that is actually for God and for eternity comes here corrupted. And we try to fill it up with anything that we think will satisfy us. And that, that look, that, that runs the gamut, Right? For some of us, it's going to be sex, it's going to be um, pornography, it's going to be drugs, it's going to be alcohol, it's going to just be people, it's going to be moving from one job to the next. Some of us can't, keep fi- can't stop financing cars. It's going to be from this thing to the next thing to the next thing, hoping to find some sense of fulfillment, yet we don't realize that that hole that we have in our hearts can only be filled and satisfied and quenched by God and nothing else. Yet many of us are going to die in this world having groped after eternity and never receiving it. That's the unfortunate reality. Many of us are going to have all these deep desires of fame and acclaim and money and, and, and women and all of this. And we're going to be no better than Solomon who can only turn back and look at his life and say, what a waste. What a waste. We have to move, every single one of us, every single one of us, if we're going to have any fulfillment in God, we have to move from our desire for the temporary to our desire 
for the eternal. Listen, every single one of us in some sort of way seeks self-preservation. We seek self-preservation. I want to live as long as I can because for every single one of us, there is this hint of doubt, right? Like, what if I do all of this and then there's nothing on the other side? And so it's like, okay, how can I extend my years as long as I have them? How can I preserve my life as long as I have it? Because when we read about the faithful men and women of God who died, having never even known the revelation of Jesus, we know deep in our heart, couldn't be me. Couldn't be me. Because we crave what's tangible. But the promises of God are not tangible. At least not yet. And so when we go through all these different things in life, we have to realize that what Jesus is doing is he's trying to shape our hearts and mold our desire to be after him. See, listen, this is the reality. Everyone in this room, Christian or not, you are going to suffer. You are going to suffer. And the only difference between Christian and non-Christian is, for the Christian, you suffer, you die, and you go be with Jesus, and that's it. And the Bible actually promises us that the, the moment that we get in eternity, the former things are so far removed from our minds because of the glory that we have to be with Jesus. So for those of us who are Christians, yeah, we are going to suffer. But what makes our suffering worthwhile is that, oh, wait, you mean to tell me I have to suffer for, you know, 45, 50, 55, 60, 85, 100 years. I'll suffer for 100 years if on the other side of that suffering, I have eternity. I don't need the best car. I don't need the perfect health. I don't need the most money because this is it. On the other side of this life is eternal life. I can do it. But for those of us who do not know Jesus in the fullness of his resurrection, and I'm not talking about the placating to him, the showing up for stuff, the thinking that I got a good relationship with them, that I ain't talking about that. I'm talking a real relationship that is rooted in the grace of God, which bears in you the evidence of a life that has been changed by Jesus. That's the kind of relationship I'm talking about. If you don't have that one, save it. Save it. Because on the other side of every person who does not know Jesus, is, you know, 20 years of suffering, 30 years of suffering, 45 years of suffering, 60 years of suffering, 85 years of suffering, 100 years of suffering, and then an eternity of suffering. And in the moment that you see, wait, this is timelessness. This is eternity. And I wasted my life pursuing what was temporal. And on the other side of that was the permanent, the fixed. There's nothing we can do to escape it. I want to look at Romans 5 and 1 to add a little bit of clarity to this. Because I think this actually does flesh it out for us quite well. 
Romans 5 and 1, especially if you're a Christian in this room, you're trying, okay, Brandon, I get it. What's the point of my suffering? Because you don't understand the weight of it. I'm suffering mentally. I'm suffering emotionally. I'm suffering physically. I'm suffering financially. I'm suffering career-wise. What does it all mean? What is trying to be accomplished? Here it is. Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, it means declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice. We who believe rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering for the believer produces endurance. And endurance produces, look at this, character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me tell you the opposite. Let me tell you the corollary truth regarding this. If you are indeed not a Christian, you are still suffering. There is no escape of the suffering of God if you're not a believer. The only difference is for the non-believer, your suffering is purposeless. There's no point in you suffering if you're an unbeliever because it is just a random act of the universe causing the, the gods to shine on you this time. There is no hope in anything that you go through if you're an unbeliever. And this is one of the big struggles that we have with our heavily medicated generation. They know this is not a pastor conservative who's against medicine. I'm not against medication. But one thing that I have learned in working in a Christian environment and working with a Christian counselor is that most of the things that are being solved with medication should be solved with Christ. And I don't mean with Christ in this you just need to pray about it way. I actually mean that we have to re reshape people's minds if they know the Lord. That when they go through that that suffering is actually meant to produce something in them. Why do we look at our world and see such a lack of all these things? There's a lack of character. There's a lack of hope. There's a lack of character. There's a lack of endurance. But there's a lot of suffering. What's the missing element between that? Christ. Christ. Tamara already heard this, but I'll share it again. So, you know, I, every morning before I, I actually, you know, lift weights and stuff, I run a mile. Every single morning, I run a mile. And I've actually progressively gotten those numbers down. Like, I've been able to get it closer and closer, like seven minutes. And I'm really excited about that because, like, that's a big deal. If you can run a mile that quickly. And it shortens my amount of time that I'm dedicating to it. But every time I get on the treadmill and run that mile, I run it in roughly about eight mile, eight minutes, roughly. I go right on to 7.5. I don't go higher because I think I'm going to fall. So, I mean, I could be running it quicker, but I'm not going to 
be that, you know, that person in there getting flipped over by the treadmill. So I don't go much faster than what I think I can. But right at basically the half point, every single time, I literally feel like I'm, I'm about to die. I can't breathe. My legs aching. I'm heavy. I feel heavy. I feel like I'm literally about to pass out. I'm not going to finish this mile. That's what it feels like every single time. Like you hit what they call is the runner's wall. And you feel like I can't get through that runner's wall every day. And it's not even the running that I regret that I'm thinking about before I get on it. It's I know I'm going to hit a wall at some point and I'm going to give up. I'm going to want to give up. I was watching a video just yesterday and it was this man who said that he had box jumped for 24 straight hours. He had pushed a, a football sled for 24 straight hours. And he said, listen, I'm going to tell you, within the first few hours, I feel like I'm, I'm going to give up. I'm going to die. He said, but my focus changes, right? My focus is no longer on 24 hours. I just think if I can just get through the next hour, I'll be fine. When I'm on the treadmill running, if I can get through this wall, this, this wall, I'll be fine. I know I'll be good. And what I've learned is when, we, when I persevere through that feeling of wanting to quit, it doesn't help me with that mile, right? It don't help me with that mile. But you know what mile it helps me with? The next one. I can run the next one because when I felt like I was going to give up and quit, I was like, no, I know I have the endurance to get through this. When God causes it, when God causes it to rain in our lives, when people start dying, when we start getting diagnoses, when the money starts flying out the bank account, when it feels like it's our turn, it may not help you in that moment. But the next time I go through, you know what it said? It is built in me. It says that that suffering has produced in me an endurance to go through again. Not an endurance that is focusing on what's happening right now, but an endurance that has my eyes fixed on eternity. And then that produces in us character. And that character is then producing in us hope. And he says it's a hope that will not put us to shame. There are plenty of things that y'all and, and I have hoped in that will absolutely put us to shame. There, look, every single one of us at some point has hoped in somebody, some relationship, right? And you start posting yourself, look how happy we are, we so in love. And you build your hope on that. Like, I, I just need this to work. Ain't nothing else worked in my life. But God, if you let this one work, and you take all of your emotions and everything that you are and you put it in that and you hope if this works out, I'll be good. And you know what happens? It doesn't. 
Now, I don't mean in the sense that y'all necessarily break up, but what you realize is if your hope is built on things that are just on this earth, they will never meet your expectations. I'm telling you that now. If your hope is tied into that person that makes you happy when you see them, they are going to disappoint you at points. If your hope is tied into the success of your children, they are going to disappoint and frustrate you. If your success and your hope is tied in your job, it's going to be some days you don't want to go. What you realize is that nothing that you can hope in on this earth will ever meet your expectations. And so everything that you can hope in will put you to shame. I mean, I've seen these people who are married for 30 years, 40 years, and then like everything that, they, that their identity is is tied into that relationship and that marriage, and then it fails, and that was a hope, something they were hoping in, and it put them to shame. I'll never forget, you know, one of the most critical moments for me personally, just not, not just as a pastor, but just as a person, one of the most critical moments is when I'm sitting there, 12 o'clock in the morning, Jasmine called me, I think the roof is off the church. I said, you think the roof is off the church or the roof off the church? And I'm looking here, and you know, every time the lightning flashes on the screen, I see this gaping hole, right? And I remember that sinking feeling that I felt was not just that there was a hole in the roof, but it was that, that thing that I was most Hoping would stay afloat. That thing that I was like, God, touch everything else. Don't touch this because that thing that I was measuring as my means of success and validation was gone. And in that moment, I realized that even I had misplaced my hope. Augustine has this wonderful line, and it's so true. He had a friend that had passed away, a friend that he loved dearly. And he said, the beginning of my grief was that I hoped and I loved a person who was, the de who was destined to die as if he would never die. Most of us are hoping in things and people that are destined to fail us and disappoint us as if that will not happen. And hence, our hopelessness. Hence, our depression. Hence, our anxiety. Our longing for purpose. That's why we all fall short of that. But Jesus makes his promise through Paul. He says, but I can give you something that if you hope in him, if you fix your eyes and your hearts on him, that's a hope that will not Put us to shame. And I can only imagine as Dietrich Bonhoeffer is getting ready to climb the gallows to be executed, to be beheaded, naked, stripped before all these people who were mocking him for being a Christian, how even he had to be reminded, but this is a hope that will not put me to shame. I imagine as Paul 
has his head placed there as the sword is getting ready to come down as the people feel like they've won the victory over Paul, how he had to remember, but this is a hope that will not put me to shame. That I am hoping in something that does exist. Jesus is real and he is on the other side waiting for me. That is where our hope should be placed. And this is a season, obviously, where we get kind of caught up in the temporary. Did I get the right gifts? Am I getting the right gifts? You know, is this this? Is this that? But our focus should be on him. Our focus should be on the eternal, the everlasting. That I can hope in someone if everybody else fails, if my mother and father leave me, if this relationship doesn't work, if this job opportunity crumbles, I can hope in something that even when they tried to kill him, they couldn't. That he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that my eternity my salvation is securely fixed in him. And there's not a single person that can snatch me out of his hand. I won't be put to shame. And so, you know, as I close, my question for you is, what are you hoping in? What, what are you actually investing all of your energy and your time and your emotions into? And you say, God, if this thing doesn't work out, my life is, is a failure. What are you hoping in? Because I'm going to tell you this. You think this isn't a race, but it is. That's what Paul said. And he's, he's at the end of his life. He says, I've run the race. I finished the course. I kept the faith. I want you to think about where you are on the race. Are you hitting that wall right now? I mean, seriously, are you at that wall where it's like, I don't know that I'm going to get to the other side of this. And I feel like whatever quitting looks like in your life, whatever that entails, is that an option because you're hoping in something that's temporary. When God has promised that we can hope in him, which is eternal. Place your hope and your trust. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He will perfectly satisfy you. And there is nothing that you will need or desire apart from him. So I'm going to say a quick prayer. And I really want you to think, you know, you can absolutely be a Christian and still be misplacing your hope. I want you to think about, okay, what are the things in life that bring me the most fulfillment? That if this thing goes wrong, I have a bad day. Or if this thing goes well, I have a good day. What are the things that I'm the most dedicated to? And I want you to think about how you need to change what you're hoping in. And fix that back on Jesus. Even as a believer. 
And specifically, if you're here, you're not a believer, you're watching, you're not a believer. I want you to think about how your hope, whatever you are hoping in in life, how at some point that's going to put you to shame. How at some point it's going to crumble beneath you. It's going to, it's going to fail you and disappoint you. How you can place your hope today in Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, God, that you have giving, uh, given us a hope. It is a hope, God, that is not like what the world hopes in. It's not a hope that, that we can pull out of our wallet and, and flip out and show people how, how we're, we're making the right decision, how successful we are. It's not that kind of hope. It's not tangible. It's a hope in the eternal, in the everlasting, in, in what you said, that there is a kingdom that you are establishing for those of us who believe that there will be no sickness in that kingdom. There will be no injustice in that kingdom. There will be no sin in that kingdom. And, and we are trying to get there. God, help us see the real ways every single day that we are misplacing our hope in things that are not you. And how that the, the reality that the cause of our anxiety and our depression and our thoughts and our hopelessness may be because we're hoping in something that's just not able to fulfill us the way that you are. God, help us identify those pitfalls. Help us see that only our hope that is placed in you will last and will not put us to shame. And God, we also just pray if there's anybody here who's present or who's watching to say, I feel hopeless. I wake up out of bed and it seems like Groundhog Day and I'm reliving the same day over and over again. I get in the car and I have no desire, no drive, no fulfillment. I feel utterly lost and alone. I turn to the same things that fail to satisfy me and I keep going back to them as if they will ever satisfy me, knowing they can't. And I realize today that what I'm longing for can only be fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus. So God, I just pray that you reveal yourself. If there's anybody watching the present who does not know you, I don't mean the false, you know, easy, soft pedal version of Christianity, but who doesn't know you in the fullness of salvation that you reveal yourself to them this is our prayer God we thank you that you are our hope and that you will not fail us you will not disappoint us and that even when we suffer that you have something that you are doing to us that is conforming us into your image an image that will be perfected in eternity that even if we have to suffer right now, for those of us who believe, this is it. 
God, we thank you for this Advent season, which reminds us that our hope is in you, the humble Son of God who came to take away our sins. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.